This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. And good afternoon, everyone. I trust you're having a good afternoon. Well, there are lots of things happening in the news these days. It's been a busy, busy day, so we'll get right to it, shall we? Harvey's Oil says the cleanup of 980 liters of oil spilled during a delivery to a home on Forbes Street in the capital city's west end earlier this week has been completed. I spoke with general manager of Harvey's Oil, Chris Forward, earlier today. Tell us what happened on Forbes Street this week. Well, Linda, at approximately 5.40 on Monday evening, uh, one of our trucks was making a routine delivery in the area, and uh, there was a, a malfunction with, uh, with one, of the, one of the pump or equipment and that on the truck, and uh, approximately 980 liters of oil was discharged from the, uh, from the truck upon further investigation. So that's a fairly substantial amount of oil. Uh, what kind of effort went into that kind of cleanup? Well, you know, Harvey's has a, uh, has a, ro- a robust um, emergency response plan, and we, and we practice for situations like this. Um, you know, unfortunately, that evening, the, wa- the weather wasn't too pleasant, but the cleanup crews, um, you know, said that the snow played a part in collecting the oil and preventing it from going farther downstream. Um, so at that time, we, uh, you know, we have act- activated our emergency response plan, and we have a contract with ECRC. And uh, from speaking with them yesterday, I mean, they told me they were they were going on 40 hours on site, and uh, you know, there was back trucks there. Uh, pumping out drains and uh, some engineers, and they were doing some testing in that. So luckily, um, the product was contained to the street, and um, and it, would, it did not go down past Kennedy Road. So we're very thankful for uh, the remediation crews and the consultants and the city of St. John's. Um, of course, Harvey's is cooperating fully with Service NL and the city and uh, the remediation crews and offering assistance where we can. Any other agencies involved, like Environment Canada, anything like that? Yes, everything really funnels through uh, Service NL. Our main concern was making sure that no product ended up in the Waterford River, um, and luckily uh, it did not, and they checked that as late as 3 o'clock yesterday afternoon, so we're, we're pleased with that. Um, but again, um, it was a great crew up there that were uh, cleaning up the situation and vacuuming out the uh, vacuuming out the drains. And in fact, uh, the Harvey's team went door to door last night, speaking with residents and providing an update and giving them a leaflet of frequently asked questions and answering any questions that they specific may have to their property. Any idea how it happened? Uh, well, the investigation is ongoing, um, and it's going to take some time to complete that. So we had to speak with, uh, you know, the pump manufacturer and uh, other uh, other uh, uh, garages and that that may be involved in that. But we are it, it is continuing. But our main concern, of course, over the first uh, 48 hours was our care for the environment and the residents in the uh, in the in the neighborhood. So now that the road is open and you know uh, the the remediation crews are confirming that nothing has made its way down into uh, the, the the rivers and that below uh, our focus and that my focus is uh, turning fully to the investigation to getting to the bottom of it. 
And you say it went into the drain. So how did that work and how did you manage to clean that out? Well, I mean, the, the Forbes Street is, is a pretty considerable incline, uh, and the truck was parked on the, on the, on the hill on Forbes Street, and that's so naturally uh, water and oil <laughs> flows downhill. Um, so GFL was on site, and they pumped out all the drains, and there's, there's oil-absorbent boom pads and that there. And uh, the consultants say they're going to take some samples over the next uh, days just to make sure that there's nothing there. But as of yesterday afternoon, uh, there was no more uh, red, uh, residual oil left from the incident. And I assume then that this uh, truck has been taken out of uh, service for the time being? Oh yes, yeah, that has been uh, impounded in our yard and uh, we'll be doing a complete investigation um, on it and I'm sure the regulatory bodies will want to take a look at it as well. And we will be cooperating fully with, uh, with all government agencies with this. And that is the general manager of Harvey's Oil, Chris Forward, with whom I spoke earlier today. Well, coming up, the federal and provincial government sign an MOU to set out a regime for offshore wind development in and around Newfoundland and Labrador. This is News Talk on VOCM. Win your Christmas cash with a VOCM Cares for the Community 50-50 draw. Buy your tickets until December 16th at VOCM.com. And we are back. Well, the provincial and federal governments have signed an MOU setting out a regime for offshore wind development in provincial waters. Federal Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson made the announcement in Ottawa today. Here are some comments from Wilkinson and Premier Andrew Fury. Today with my friend Premier Fury and my Newfoundland Labrador colleagues, I am pleased to announce that Canada and the province of Newfoundland Labrador have concluded a memorandum of understanding regarding the regime for offshore wind projects within provincial waters. This MOU establishes a framework for the province to lead the regulatory process for offshore wind within their bays as though they were onshore, confirming Newfoundland Labrador as the principal beneficiary of these provincial resources, allowing for an independent provincial regulatory approvals process. This agreement provides the province with the authority to determine the pace and the scale of project development within clearly defined geographic areas in the province's bays and will give the province flexibility to manage the timing and frequency of land tenure activities, bid criteria, nominated areas and other activities. This will ensure the immediate opportunities proposed by industry that respond to the province's hydrogen development strategy can be pursued independently, which will help to expedite near-term calls for bids and provide increased clarity and certainty to proponents seeking to make investments in this exciting emerging offshore wind sector. Providing this ability illustrates progress in our collaboration under the Regional Energy and Resource Tables and demonstrates how both levels of government can work together to seize the opportunities that are associated with the transition that help to achieve our shared climate, energy and economic policy objectives. The MOU also reinforces our shared commitment to continue the highly successful joint management regime outside the base through the offshore energy regulator. Together, we are sending a clear signal to the global market that Canada intends to lead as a reliable supplier of choice of clean energy products and technologies to our global partners. It will help to catalyze investments in a region that is already highly attractive to developers based on its resource potential, skilled workforce and supply chains, and indeed a conducive policy environment. I just want to take a moment to say a couple words about the status of the very important Bill C-49. As part of our broader plan, we certainly need more clean power. We need a lot more clean power. Offshore wind offers an opportunity for Atlantic Canada to not only feed the significantly 
more uh, more renewable energy to the grid, but it also provides this enormous export opportunity for hydrogen. As you know, C49 will expand the mandate of the offshore boards to enable the regulation of renewable energy in the joint management areas in Nova Scotia and Newfoundland and Labrador. It is a critical piece of legislation to enable our offshore power potential to be realized, not just to meet federal climate targets, but to achieve provincial power and economic plans. As you know, the bill has been subject to a five-week filibuster by the Conservative Party of Canada. To be honest, I just do not understand Mr. Polyev and why his Atlantic MPs would decide to oppose and to stall a bill that is supported by Premier Fury and Premier Houston and is intended to enable the development of an economic, a huge economic opportunity for Atlantic Canada. We are presently working diligently to ensure this legislation will pass expeditiously so that it can actually go to the provincial legislatures, which require mirror legislation. Certainly, we need to ensure that we are able to move that forward, and I think Canadians expect Parliament to do better. Canada works best when Canadians work together. This is why we are working with provinces and territories, Indigenous communities, business, labour, to decarbonize the economy and to advance investments in major projects and low-carbon energy sources in every region of Canada. From the Canada-Germany Hydrogen Alliance, signed in Stephenville, Newfoundland, last year, to the $11.5 billion new net-zero petrochemical facility that Dow announced in Alberta just last week, we are seeing significant and sustained progress on building the clean economy of the future. This MOU and our broader efforts to unlock the offshore wind sector are very much part of this important and increasingly successful work. By way of closing, it is up to us as a country to make choices. And we do indeed have a choice. We can choose to lead by recognizing where the world is heading and aggressively pursuing those opportunities that will be enabled through a transition to a low-carbon future. Or we can bury our heads in the sand, pretend that the world is not moving rapidly towards a cleaner and greener economy, eroding our competitiveness and our long-term prosperity. I would call the first choice a green economic plan for the future, one that is thoughtful, one that is relevant, one that is strategic. And the second I would call effectively just hoping for the best, which would mean taking a tragic gamble with the future of the planet and with Canada's current and future prosperity. Any thoughtful person must, in my mind, conclude that we simply must choose to lead. Today is a very good day for the offshore wind industry, I think for Newfoundland and Labrador, and for Canada. Starting on land and after today, creating a path towards our onshore and offshore and inshore assets alike, this is an exciting day. The province is already well underway with respect to our onshore developments. The construction and operation phases of four potential projects will range from 35 to 40 years of anticipated work and have an overall impact on the GDP of $206.2 billion, an additional $11.7 billion in revenue for the province. Based on project plans, peak employment is estimated to be approximately 12,000 full-time jobs in construction, and the total capital spend will exceed $60 billion. And that is just on land. Now we look to the ocean. What brought us to Newfoundland and Labrador in the first place? A look towards 
a forward progressive agenda, a one that captures the energy of our coastal and offshore developments. Our province has the key ingredients to competitively produce and export green hydrogen, truly green hydrogen, from strong wind to fresh water, deep sea ports, a green grid, and proximity to markets. And we have already established partnerships with multiple European partners. Our government's renewable energy plan provides a sustainable long-term vision for Newfoundland and Labrador to maximize that renewable energy space. A big part of that is advancing our renewable energy leadership and status as a clean energy supplier and hydrogen hub for North America. Now, with the support of our friends in Ottawa, we can start to take full advantage of that global opportunity. These historic proposed legislative amendments to the Atlantic Accord are significant for us as we will work together to develop our offshore resources. And they will include, as Minister Wilkinson has already highlighted, defining offshore areas that will be formally recognized to be within exclusive provincial jurisdiction, allowing us to develop them as if they were on land. This will allow us, as a province, to regulate, develop, and benefit from these provincial waters while providing certainty to industry. These changes will ensure a fiscal framework that provides the maximum economic returns to Newfoundland and Labrador. Just as in oil, we will continue to be the principal beneficiary of our renewable resource space. In addition to those historic generational changes, we will rename the CNLOPB, Canada, Newfoundland and Labrador Offshore Energy Board, and expand its mandate to become the lead regulatory body for offshore energy in the offshore areas outside provincial jurisdiction. This enhances joint management of the offshore outside of those with prov provincial exclusivity and builds upon extensive expertise at the CNLOPB and as they have done such a great job in managing our oil and gas, our oil and gas platforms to date. I'm pleased today as these amendments continue to progress through the House of Commons. This MOU regarding offshore wind has what we need right now. The signing of this today is an important step forward for Canada and for Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Premier Andrew Fury in Ottawa today for the signing of this MOU with the federal government uh, to uh, set out a regime for offshore wind development in provincial waters. Well, um, in other local news, the Association of Allied Health Professionals has started collective bargaining on a new contract for its 800-plus members. AAHP President Gord Piercy is on the line. Well, good afternoon, Gord Piercy. How are you doing, Linda? Good, so, uh, collective bargaining has begun and you're hard at it. Tell us what's going on. Well, today, Linda, we started our conciliation process with a, a, a mediator through the Labor Relations Agency. So, uh, you know, we've been bargaining for um, over a year. We've had over, oh my gosh, I want to say 24 touch points with government, uh, you know, sit down negotiations, some other touch points. So we've, we've had lots of conversations. So we're hoping that with the help of a conciliator, we will be able to move this forward. So what are some of the key points of negotiation here? What are you looking for? 
Well, in the, the, the be honest, there's not a whole lot. There's a few, but there are key points, and the one in particular is we're wanting government to really uh, engage with uh, with us on uh, compensation on pay. Uh, we're doing that for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first thing would be that uh, Linda, back in 2015, when government brought in its job evaluation system. It created some pay disparities, and it adversely impacted on our group, which is very unfortunate. And it, uh, it's, it's a disparity, a pay disparity that's actually widened over time. It's been an issue for a long time. It's becoming a huge issue right now, Linda, because it's actually impacting on recruitment and retention. We know there is a global shortage of health professionals. We know that we're competing with other provinces to get these people. Occupational therapists, physiotherapists, speech pathologists are all trained out of province, and we're competing to get them back here in the province. So for our group in particular, it's a complex, multifaceted issue, and it's hard to explain it all in a a news story, but we are of the mindset right now, Linda, that this has to be addressed. If there's going to be any of us left in the publicly provided healthcare system, we need to address this now. This is the moment in time where we've got to do this. And what is recruitment? What does it, uh, not recruitment, but sorry, retention, what does it look like right now? Well, retention right now, uh, there are concerns because we are getting, we have people who are being lured to the private sector, so they don't have to leave the province, Linda. Sometimes it means they're moving to the shopper's drug mart down the street from their house. Uh, You know, our pharmacists, you know, we've had competition that's been Decades we've been competing with those uh, large corporate pharmacies, retail pharmacies. But we're seeing it grow and grow for other groups, including rehab, specialties, physiotherapy, occupational therapy. And it's growing immensely in mental health. So a lot of privately uh, operated agencies that are doing private mental health counseling, and they're pulling away the clinical social workers and the psychologists. Right now, we have a 51% vacancy rate in psychology and a 14% vacancy rate across all of our, right across all our occupation groups. So while some of the numbers in these occupation groups may not be that high, they do have, one would think, uh, an impact. People will see the impact if there are vacancies. Absolutely, Linda. And we have, like, in our membership, again, 22 occupations, but some of them we represent maybe two or three uh, of these people, uh, you know, in, in the certain particular classification. Uh, Orthoptus is one. That's one group that, you know, there's just two of them, and they serve the province. So these are really significant people. They have provincial mandates a lot of times, so they're seeing people across the province, across age lifespans. So they're seeing pediatrics, but they're also seeing adults and seniors. So they are, they may not be big numbers, but their impact and their footprint in the healthcare system is huge. And we need government to recognize that. The other thing, Linda, that we're constantly trying to help government understand is that when you look at small, like rural settings, you may have a three-person physiotherapy department. If you lose one of those physiotherapists, that's a third of that work no longer getting done. And that drives wait lists. It may mean that services may not be available to certain populations. So even though sometimes there may not be large numbers, it may not be like massive vacancies, but they are impactful and they do 
it do erode the continuity of care and the service provision that the residents of the province can receive. So what's the general mood heading into this uh, round of bargaining? Are you optimistic? We're, we're always trying to hang on to our optimism. I will admit to you, Linda, it's getting more of a challenge. For, from the membership perspective, they are motivated. They're mobilizing. There's an energy inside of this union that I have never seen. I've been a member, a regular member, plus in a part of the leadership with the union for you know 28 years. And um, it's an energy right now. People are really feeling this is the moment in time to address this. The other thing, Linda, that you mentioned earlier, and I don't think I wrapped around, but aside from, you know, what's on members' mind, compensation is a huge issue because we know it directly impacts recruitment and retention. But we're also looking for government to have some meaningful dialogue with us around workloads and workplace culture. So just some of the working conditions that the members are enduring, they, they some of them worked heavily during the pandemic and did things that I'm I'm humbled when I hear what some of our members have did during the pandemic. When I think about what some of the things our respiratory therapists done, our pharmacists in the acute care settings and so on, other people as well went, did all they could do and did it with, without a whole lot of ceremony or any complaining. You know, this is a group that are very motivated. They like the jobs they do. They historically have kept their heads down, did their job but they feel like this is a moment in time where they've got to speak up and we need change. Gord Piercy, I know you're very busy. I do appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you, Linda. Take care. We'll talk soon. Gord Piercy there, uh, stepping out from the collective bargaining process to share those thoughts with us. Uh, He is the president of the Allied Health Professionals. Well, uh, when we come back, ever look at the mirror and wonder what you're doing with your life? We've all (laughs) contemplated that at one time or another. What's with the big guffaw there, Claudette? I mean, how often do we do that? Uh, Yeah, at some point in your life, you've done it at least once. After 40, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, COVID really changed the way that uh, a lot of people approach their careers in particular. You know, like, what am I doing? Am I I fulfilled with what I'm doing? And that kind of thing. Uh, One of them was Kevin Casey, who put some of his transformative ideas to paper in a new book. And he joins me next. This is News Talk on VOCM. Make a request anytime by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The soundtrack of your holiday joy, your VOCM. And Claudette, the entertainment world has lost a, well, a transformative figure. Uh, Norman Lear has died at the age of 101. Oh, famous for all in the family, family and Maud, another Maud, one, yeah. the Jeffersons. Oh, the Jeffersons. Yeah, some of the 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 you know, the the most iconic programs in the last half a century. And it is a half a century. Those were 70s TV shows. Well, um, uh, Norman Lear died um, Tuesday night at the age of 101, would you believe? All in the family starred Carol O'Connor as diehard conservative Archie Bunker, uh, who clashed with his liberal son-in-law over things like racism, feminism, and the Vietnam War. And we were talking about this in the newsroom the other day. I mean, they could have made Archie Bunker an absolute evil bore, if you will, mm-hmm. you know, a real... Uh, but he was 
treated very sympathetically. He was, you know, a bit of comedy relief, no doubt, and his actions and his his stand on a lot of things were, um, you know, portrayed in, in, in a ridiculous way, if you will. But also there was, they, they, they weren't cruel with him, if you know what I'm saying. Although at the same time, you would not perhaps get away with that kind of writing nowadays, like with that particular character. It, it's kind of, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It was a first. Yeah. So um, I think that's what makes it most forgivable significant uh if you will um anyway um he and bud yorkin um produced a, a number of uh, hits during that time of course the jeffersons was a spin-off of um all in the family because uh um oh my gosh i forget his name what was the name of the lead character oh, in the sherman. jeffersons well is it sherman William? yeah that was the uh, actor sherman helmsley but um Oh, Thomas? Was it Thomas? Je- no, it wasn't Thomas. No. Je- anyway, oh Wait, my God. Oh, that's going to drive me nuts. His now wife was George. Wheezy. George. George Jefferson. Thank oh, you. They were my favorite. Thank you, Noah. Uh, yeah, George Jefferson and uh, Wheezy. Different strokes, too. Some uh, He was. Uh, yeah, well. yeah, a little yeah. later on. Uh, that went into the 80s, I think, late 70s, early 80s. Um, and Maud, of course, which made uh, B. Author. You Infamous, know, the yeah. absolute uh, megastar that she was. Uh, Lyrius' series reflected his political beliefs, which he put into action by founding the nonprofit liberal advocacy group People for the American Way. And of course, all of this came as the result, of course, of the Vietnam War and the uh, the real opposition, um, grassroots opposition to um, Richard Nixon and his policies at the time, and uh, and uh, the United States um, presence in Vietnam. So yeah, transformative. 101, would you believe? Due to natural causes. <laughs> no I mean, doubt. imagine being allowed, you know, to live that long and just die peacefully. Like and that. I it's saw great. him in a recent uh, com- uh, series, sorry, about comedy, about uh, the history of American comedy, if you will. Uh, uh, it was put together for CNN, if memory serves. Anyway, um, uh, and uh, they interviewed him there, and he was looking hale and hearty, <laughs> and he had to be well up into his late 90s at the time. So yeah, very sad, but uh, what, a, what a, a mark he made on popular culture in North America. Well, uh, local salesman and co founder of the ad agency, The Idea Factory, is out with a book penned during the pandemic that has been listed as a bestseller on Amazon. Kevin Casey joins me now. Well, good afternoon, Kevin Casey. Good afternoon, Linda. How are you today? Good. How does it feel to be a uh, bestseller? (laughs) I'm still the same. People still ignore me. My dog still barks at me. No one's really treating me any different. It's the exact same as yesterday. Except that you have this, uh, I guess, recognition now. But it's it's funny. You 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 wrote a book about selling that's become a bestseller. Take us through your journey here. How did you get started on this project? You know, it really started during COVID, and while everyone was kind of had a choice where we're all going to watch Squid Games in our pajamas for a year. Uh, and watch Netflix, I I went down this rabbit hole a little bit of starting to reflect, which a lot of people did during COVID, about their life and what they've done and what's next in their life because we were all scared. And I had this thought of the way I used to sell right up until 2012 
which was definitely more of the hustle and grind and push and pressure because that's the way most salespeople were taught, and I was no different. And you really don't like looking at yourself in the mirror when you're selling like that, even if you're doing good. And I had this thought of what are all the things I've done different over the last eight years that have made my life better, and I like looking in the mirror more, and I seem to be doing less, yet I'm selling more. And I started to codify these things, and I called them Costanzas instead of commandments because they were inspired from this one episode of Seinfeld where George Costanza does the opposite because his life is such a mess. And Jerry says, just do the opposite. If everything you've done is always wrong, do the opposite. So I tried about 25 of these opposites, which I call Costanzas in the book, and 14 kind of stuck. And I started to write a book that took 753 days. It was painful. And then I just hit publish and yeah, it's a weird things happen. And it's become a bestseller. Yeah, I mean, you know, quite frankly, in in pure on-selling style here, you can pick a category. I mean, I didn't pick basket weaving and become a bestseller, so I didn't play any games like that. But, you know, I think Amazon creates this dopamine hit for authors that, you know, if your book does really good in a day, they call you a bestseller, and it probably lasts one or two days. So... The carton milk in my fridge may last longer than that title, but it's nice. It's okay. I want this to get in the hands of people who need it because I think there's a lot of people who aren't really proud of the way they sell. And there's another group of people I believe are the freelancers and the solopreneurs and small business people that would rather actually sell their firstborn than have to sell. Yet they've got an amazing business, but they're scared to sell. And this book is going to kind of lay out a way that you can sell without trying to pretend to be somebody else or be that pushy person that we all try to avoid. So, you know, have you taken any of this advice under your your own advisement and, and you know, seen success with it? Yeah, I mean, everything I do in the book is what I preach. Uh, so I don't teach what I or I don't teach what I don't do myself. Um, I picked 14 of these Costanzas, these opposites. I put them on the book, and, and honestly, I practice them every single day. And I tried to teach it to the people in my circle. Uh, the hardest part of some of these is they're going to feel very, very uncomfortable at first because it goes against everything that we've been taught and everything we've been experienced. And even simple things like, you know, my grade eight English teacher or my business prof is probably not going to love the way that I write emails these days because I don't use $50 words. I use five cent words. And that's Costanza number four, which is just speak conversationally. And I see normal people who suddenly got to sell something and they turn into robots and they use words that they would never use speaking to their friends at dinner or over a coffee. So one of the things is just do the opposite of of where we've been waterboarded and conditioned as salespeople to be pushy. So it's more, I'm taking it, about developing relationships and trust rather than uh, being slick and, you know, that kind of yeah, thing? It's, it's about being comfortable letting people say no. So you bring that up very early in the process that it's okay to say no and you're not a fit for everybody. But you've also got the right to say, if I can't help you, 
I'm going to do my best to point you in a different direction. And when you do that, the environment between a buyer and a seller gets very comfortable. And this is about seeking the truth over seeking the sale. And I've lived both those worlds. And life is a lot better when you're out there to seek the truth because you stop chasing and you stop wasting so much energy. Has this new approach, you know, worked for you so far? Uh, it works in two ways. One of them is monetary, for sure, that, you know, I've never had so much success in sales. But the most important thing is you're going to be very proud of the way you look at yourself in the mirror because you're going to sell in a more noble fashion that makes you feel good. So, you know, if my dad, who passed away in 2019, was a fly in the wall and he saw the way I sold in 2012, I don't know if he'd be too happy. But if he was a fly in the wall now, I think he'd be proud of what he'd see. Well, Kevin, uh, congratulations on the uh, bestseller moniker, however long that might last. Um, and all the best to you. Do let us know uh, once uh, this, the book is more broadly available, I suppose, in physical form. Um, and all the best. Thank you, Linda. I appreciate it. And that's Ken uh, Casey about his uh, new book, Unselling, uh, basically outlining a number of, as he puts it, constanzas. Remember that episode of uh, Seinfeld when um, uh, George decides, or Jerry decides for George, that everything he's done to date has failed miserably doing what he, <laughs> you know, his instinctively, uh, his decision-making process. So do everything opposite. And then all of a sudden he became a, <laughs> a success. No, so. I don't remember that one. Oh. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Right? Thanks. When I go back to re-watch all of them, I'll be equally surprised, but I'll remember that Linda pointed me in that direction. <laughs> but yeah, that was uh, that was uh, a great episode where all of a sudden he does the exact opposite. opposite of everything he does. And then Elaine decides to um, do the exact opposite of everything she's ever done. And she turns into George, basically. And George turns into this success successful human being for a period of time of course he goes back to being george after a while but anyway it's an interesting concept constanzas i'm going to keep that in mind um, when we come back of course we talked about this we build it a few times uh, over the course of the last few days but a, a big announcement related to curling in the capital city area st john's uh, making a name for itself as a curling go-to if you will uh, so we'll have more on that big announcement coming up right after this this is news talk on vocm stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your vocm join linda swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you news talk on your vocm and uh, some uh, encouraging news, if you will, out of the Bank of Canada today. It's once again held its key interest rate steady at 5% because it's encouraged by evidence that higher rates are helping to bring inflation down. Forecasters widely expect the Bank of Canada's next move will be a rate cut, but the central bank isn't ruling out future hikes due to concerns about risks to the outlook for inflation. RBC economist Claire Fan says the emphasis the central bank placed on weaker economic data reinforces the idea that it will not raise rates again. So um, a lot of uh, forecasters
investors now watching to see what happens, especially early in the new year as uh, some of these economic indicators uh, starting to indicate uh, that um, um, the economy as a whole is starting to slow down. And in fact, uh, there are uh, some uh, serious questions about whether or not um, the country might be on the brink of a recession. So uh, watching that very closely and see what happens early in the new year. Uh, none more so, of course, than those who are uh, due for uh, renewal on their mortgages. Well, there was a big announcement at uh, Mary Brown Center this morning uh, for an event that will bring the top 16 men's and women's curling teams in the world to St. John's this time next year. The 2024 Coyote National Grand Slam of Cur Curling sorry, is set for November 26th to December 1st of 2024. Representatives of Sportsnet, which will broadcast the event, as well as with the city, the province, business, and tourism reps, were all the arena this morning to celebrate the big news. Steve Crocker is the province's minister responsible for tourism and recreation, and he led off this morning's news conference. As you can tell from many of our guests' presence this morning, this announcement is all about curling. And Newfoundland and Labrador has a strong and long storied history in that sport. Since Jack McDuff won the first provincial briar in 1976, curling has generated some of the most exciting sports moments in our province, and more so even in recent years. Of course, that includes watching Team Guju win Olympic gold in 2006. I think we have two members of that team here this morning. The well-dressed Councillor Korab. <laughs> and Mark. So again... <laughs> I'm not saying... I'm oh, sorry. So, sorry, Mark. Mark. Mark is going to get to speak later, so... Uh, and of course, uh, watching Team Guju win the Olympic gold, then a briar, and we built on it ever since 2017. And Team Guju continues that success today, which includes their most recent win in Japan just last week. And I think Mark is not long off to flight from Japan, so congratulations on last week's win. Today I am pleased to announce that the Grand Slam of Curling is coming back to St. John's for the 2024 Coyote National. This event will take place from November the 26th to December the 1st, 2024, right here in St. John's, right here at the Mary Brown Center. The Coyote National will feature the top 16 men's and 16 women's teams from around the world. What you will see on the ice is truly the best of the best, including Olympic medalists, world champions, Canadian favorites, who will all be here in St. John's for this event. This event will be broadcast on Sportsnet as well as streamed internationally and St. John's and surrounding area will be on display for the world to see. In 2017 when we hosted the Briar, we showed all of Canada that what we have is a wonderful city and a wonderful province to host major sporting events. The curlers, the curling fans who came here left with many memories, many stories about the warm welcome they received and the excitement they felt when they are here in St. John's and in our province. All of this was because of the hard work and commitment of organizers and volunteers who pitched in to make that event and all of our events here in our province a success. Thank you to Sportsnet for your decision to bring this international event to our province in 2024. We once again will step up and provide the most incredible experience for everyone who attends. 
Of course, part of bringing fun and excitement to our communities, events like this are often and are an important piece of our tourism and hospitality industries and that economy. Sport tourism in particular brings athletes, coaches, trainers, and large numbers of spectators to our province, resulting in tremendous economic benefit. And that's why it's so important for our government to support events like the Grand Slam of Curling. Since the creation of Celebrate NL in 2022, our government has been successful in attracting some key events to our province. We recently announced the Canadian Folk Music Awards to be held in St. John's next spring. Next summer, we will host the Harbour Voices International Choral Festival. And just last week, we announced the return of Come From Away for year two next summer in Gander. All a part of what will be an exciting year, the year that our province has proclaimed Year of the Arts. And of course, the province and the city will host the Canada Summer Games in 2025. Event attraction is competitive, but Newfoundland and Labrador is quickly establishing itself as a vibrant and thriving location for major national and international events and celebrations. Thank you again to Sportnet and all of our partners, Mayor Breen, the councillors of the City of St. John's, Destination St. John's, Step St. John's, and the St. John's Curling Club, Remax Centre, and the Mary Brown Center for their hard work in bringing this curling championship back to our province. So that is uh, Tourism Minister Steve Crocker there. I, I wonder what um, Mark was wearing. <laughs> uh, he made a uh, point of uh, mentioning how good uh, Brad Guzier looked, and then he said, and Mark. <laughs> oh, I think Mark looked fine. At least, you know, when I looked at the pictures, uh, <laughs> he's just trying to save himself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, uh, it's a big tourism draw at a tough time of year for many tourism um, operations and uh, the downtown St. John's where a lot of independent uh, type of uh, business owners reside. Um, so it is, uh, it, it's, a, it's a good little boost at a, a normally tough time of year. I mean, you know, Christmas is one thing that's good for uh, business, but it uh, it might not be the best time for tourism. So, yeah, that's a big boost. And curling fans really are into their curling. And they will follow. They, they will do. follow it. They uh, follow it. it is. Especially Canadian curling fans. Yeah. Um, also, um, restaurants will get a great boost, too. So yeah. they can just see the snowballing for the good. So to speak. Or curling rock <laughs> yes um yeah so uh interesting uh and and st john's has really made a name for itself for in curling you know for quite some time now in part i would imagine because of the interest that the guju rink has drawn to this province and st john's in particular but uh and it's given younger people an incentive to get into the sport here locally as well i'm told oh i'm told yes that curling is like golf once you get into it you're hooked you're in it you are love it that's what i'm told i haven't tried it myself yet yeah i think it involves too much math for me <laughs> <laughs> i have to say uh like 
my husband watches curling and he's, yeah. he's into it and he's like oh wow and you know that you know that headshot that the, the overhead shot that they show of the big target there yes. or whatever they call it the button and all yeah. that stuff um he's like oh yeah you know he's got all the strategy down mm-hmm. i'm like oh they push that out he said no that's good i'm like why i don't <laughs> i still don't understand the game myself but I find it complicated i need somebody to explain it in layman's terms so i can enjoy it more as a watcher um right now i prefer to just participate in things but even so i think that would be so hard to do they say it's gotten more interesting now that they've got everybody mic'd and you can hear what they're saying oh. and they're all strategizing <laughs> and all that stuff <laughs> It's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. But again, you got to know all of the ins and outs. The ins and outs. Yeah. But in, yeah, the in, ins. Quite, the ins. quite literally the, <laughs> the ins. ins and outs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, we'll look forward to that next year, of course. Well, that's it for us for today. Thanks for listening, everyone. I do appreciate that. And our, um, you know, strained conversation <laughs> on curling. <laughs> I know because I I don't really. I don't have a clue. I don't have a clue. Yeah, there you go. On on uh, curling. (laughs) Meanwhile, there's a few people in our newsroom gnashing their teeth at us because they're die couple couple in there. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. for sure. Uh, So we'll be back tomorrow. Do join us then. Uh, Thanks for listening, everyone.